When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Garki from the New Books Network, and I'm pleased to have with me today Sarah Bruyet, who is a professor at Carleton University in Canada. She is an author of five books, and most recently she has published with the Cambridge University Press, African, uh, Underdevelopment in African Literature, Emergent Forms of Reading. Um, so, Professor Bruyet, I'm pleased to have you with me today. Um, my first question is about the genesis of this book. Um, can you tell us a little bit how this book came to be? Sure. Uh, and thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. Uh, the, I guess the book has a kind of distant genesis and a more immediate genesis. Um, in the more distant genesis, I think that Um, As a PhD student, I was uh, in a book history and print culture program at the University of Toronto. So I was doing a PhD in the history of the book. um, And I was also a post-colonialist. And I was interested in um, the production of books and the history of print and, and books um, globally and particularly in the colonies. And at that time, so this would have been to, starting in 2000, there wasn't the amount of research on that topic that there is now. Um, so it, it seemed like a relatively neglected area of study and it was something that I was really fascinated by. Um, and I ended up in my thesis um, writing a bit about the global publishing industry, but not um, a whole lot. Um, But I was interested in and um, kind of fascinated by UNESCO and its literacy statistics and its measures of sort of the adoption of English in particular. And I was a little bit um, kind of, I guess, unsatisfied with a lot of the work in print culture studies, which had a tendency to sort of prioritize um, the West. And 
to treat its models of publishing as universal, as sort of the models of publishing and the only way that things could be done. And then simultaneously, in terms of the literacy statistics, to treat um, English as sort of a, a, a boon, um, as a, a gift, um, as a welcome lingua franca. Um, and I was kind of wary of that at the time. Um, and so that's going all the way back to the early 2000s. But then more recently, um, at Carleton University, I've been teaching in a new program, which is the Global and International Studies program, which is a bachelor's degree. And there's a required course at the second level in global literatures. And the it it's a very international program. There are students from all over the world, and there are a lot of students who are from Africa. And I thought, oh, you know, to make it relevant and interesting to their um, broader program, I'm going to teach narratives of development. Um, so we do look at literature uh, about, you know, development as a concept and experience and the buildings Roman and all that stuff. But we also, um, you know, look at political economic narratives about development. And within that, um, I started thinking about how books themselves are um, not separate from this, that they are a manifestation of and enmeshed in broader histories of development and underdevelopment. Um, and then I thought, well, that's an interesting thing to kind of think through. So I started I started um, doing that. Um, and then ultimately, I was asked by the editor of the cluster that I was a part of um, with my my small text, because these mini graphs were designed to be um, sort of brief and clustered with others that were on related topics. Um, so Caroline Davis asked me if I was interested in writing one and if I was working on anything relevant, and I was, uh, so I did. That's that's. Wonderful. Um, I, I do want to ask you, you, you talk about East Africa and South Africa in, in, in this book. How is this particular region um, different from, let's say, other Anglophone areas in the world? Like, why, why do you start with these in, in talking about development? Because that's something that's going around the world, all over the world, yes. Yes. That's a very good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that I have a completely satisfying answer. In some ways, I think some of these things are the product of happenstance. Um, but I think that um, when I looked at the literature that I could find, like one of the things that ended up happening with um, – the book is that I it was it was really shaped by um, the pandemic because my original intention for the book had been to um, travel and actually go to some writers festivals <laughs> and write about um, writers festivals and visitor economies and clearly that didn't end up happening. Um, so I was quite reliant on sort of the body of research that had been done. 
Um, and I just, I think like over the last five years, there has just been a burgeoning of interest in the study of um, emerging either digital literatures or sort of print cultures in Africa. So I was depending on that research. And a lot of that seemed to be focused on, um, or what is focused on, let's say, primarily uh, Nigeria and, and Kenya, and with and some on uh, Uganda. Um, and I would say, the reasons for that have to do with the reasons why there are more somewhat more developed print culture book cultures um, than there are in other parts of Africa, right? Like there are areas of African countries in Africa that produce basically no books. Um, so these are areas where there are these concentrated pockets of sort of um, things that resemble more advanced economies um, where there is like a developed middle class and there is a leisured readership and there is some disposable income for books and things like that. Um, so I think that the the nature or the, the body of research in these fields is constrained in a way by the archive, which is constrained by the nature of development. Um, so it's where there are the kind of more, um, I don't know, considerable, I'm not sure what, what, um, where there's an, enough activity for it to be sort of quantifiable in some way that there has tended to be research focus. And so I just kind of had to go where there has been research because I was just, you know, completely dependent on work by other scholars, um, to make any claims at all. Um, so that's that's kind of that's kind of how how that occurred. Um, and th thank you. Uh, I also want to talk about uh, the time period. You start uh, with the seventies, and and you insist that this is this is the line you want to take because uh, there is, I assume, a certain kind of shift uh, happening in the way it print cult print culture is being developed in this region. Can you talk a little bit about 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 the decade of the seventies? Yeah, I mean, I think the general narrative that I was interested in um, sort of tracing um, is tends to think about the 1970s as a time when there was maybe a moment of possibility. And this, this kind of connects to... Um, other work that I've done. So in my, my previous book about UNESCO, um, I look a lot at interest in development and interest in cultural development in the 1970s and the focus on the book as this sort of thing that needed to be developed globally um, almost as a kind of right. And um, I think there was a sense that there was a lot of energy and activity put into um, state-based supports for development of book cultures um, in the 1970s. But then, of course, after the 1970s, with all of the phenomena that tend to be associated with neoliberalism, but that I would, you know, perhaps um, associate with just economic turbulence um, or contraction and with um, sort of um, the withdrawal of state-based supports for things like um, culture and the arts, the narrative 
or, and the sense of possibility, I think, turns. And there's a way in which um, all of the conditions that were identified in the 1970s as being sort of um, inhibiting the development of um, large-scale book production and leisured readership. And I'm, you know, eager to emphasize that I I don't want to treat those things as inherent goods as they're sometimes treated, but that the conditions that were in place that inhibited those things are still in place in many cases, and in fact, even um, exacerbated. Um, And that, but at the same time, so that's sort of for things that inhibit the development of a kind of like um, leisure disposition toward the book that's um, essential to cultivation of a sort of literary habitus. And this is not unique to Africa. This is a global phenomenon that I'm more interested in. Um, But at the same time, there is since the 1970s, a tremendous influx of people into cities looking for work um, and a tremendous growth in urban-born populations and a decline of the rural population. And with that, a picking up of um, English language by necessity. So um, I was sort of interested in looking at the adoption of English as a manifestation of material need and then what new forms of kind of reading culture, more popular, not necessarily literary reading culture, um, arise in response to that emerging readership um, or potential potential readership. And then also how the kind of like more um, official, say, high literary um, forms of publication try to capture <laughs> that emerging readership um, and the fears they have about it, um, especially about its, you know, lack of interest in participating in the legal book trades by buying expensive um paperbound um, or perfect copies of books at official licensed booksellers, that that sort of thing. So that was the kind of dynamic that I was interested in. And I, I don't think that's um, completely unique um, since in the period since the 1970s, but I do think it's a dynamic that's more evident now um, for all of those, those reasons. Yeah, yeah you're, you're right. Um, I would want to go back to the the the, to, uh, the title of your book. Uh, when one reads African literature, one one tends to think, to think of the canons of uh, of African literature, or be that me as Canadian literature or English literature. But you place equal emphasis on on, on textbooks or on books that are uh, written specifically for the learners of the language or on official text. Um, why do you think they're valuable for understanding the print culture in contemporary or post-colonial Africa? Oh, oh, that's interesting. Um, That's such a good question. Um, I think that um, in part, I mean, there's so many ways to answer this. I think in part, um, it wouldn't really even be possible to understand the nature of the book industries without looking at all of what is 
produced. And I think the main thing um, that people who have, you know, tracked like the, or who, who are really carefully studying all of the um, book industries in Africa over decades um, will say is that the, it's been completely dependent on textbook production or, you know, state contracts for official materials. Um, and so just having that sense, like, or, or what the, the print industry has been devoted to and reliant on, I think is really important and also kind of gives a sense of um, the, the, I guess, ways of distinguishing between the elite sphere of kind of, um, production of African literature for global audiences, and then the more local activity of actual publishers. And again, like I wouldn't, I don't want to suggest this is unique to the African situation, um, but it is an important part of the history of, of print. Um, and I think too, like if you look at book culture or or print industries as social forms, you know, it this really reflects. Um, on the ground reality that it's in when people are in school, that's often the only um, time, you know, that they encounter that or that they participate in the activity of reading for leisure. Um, And then often, you know, the lament is, oh, when people leave school, they don't really they don't keep up with reading, (laughs) you know, and it's because it's very uh, expensive and not necessarily convenient to acquire texts. uh, And because you don't have that like state backing for production of these these works. And then of course, like even when people are in school, there aren't enough texts available and people struggle to get like supplementary reading material so that they can practice their new skills. Um, But yeah, I think like just understanding the general situation for the reader is important. Um, You know, I also just like, I didn't want to focus just on um, high art, like African literature, um, because I mean, so many of the texts in the canon are, and so so much of that is, as you know, I point out, like Western facing, you know, and I, I say that it's um, really got past the problem of the absent reader. And I think that's really important and sort of constitutive of the field. I, I even though I don't consider myself like an expert in, in African literature, it seems to me those debates about the extent to which um, African literature is Western facing or the extent to which it's, you know, self exoticizing or self anthropologizing, um, they're sort of inescapable for people who are participating within the field. Um, so even if they, you know, discount the validity of those kinds of claims, it's there, right? Like in the consciousness and in the discussion, in the debate all the time. Um, and I think one way to understand that and to situate that and contextualize it is to look at why publishing in Africa is underdeveloped, quote unquote. I sort of prefer to say undercapitalized, um, but you know why, why that is and why there is this need to rely on other readers who don't necessarily live in Africa. Um, and also it just seemed like there's already so much scholarship on um that topic and there's sort of less scholarship on more emergent sort of demotic popular forms. Um, And I'm kind of just as interested in both. So I thought, why not 
try to do a little bit <laughs> of of both. Yes, uh, you're right. And there's so much to unpack there, but uh, I would go that one by one. Um, uh, I would first want to ask you, in your research, because it's East Africa, um, I can't help but think of the African and if in Mozambique, the Portuguese sources. Do you, uh, in your research, do you come across if it's the same in the other colonial languages in Africa? Or do you think this is especially because of English? Because in English, we have US and Canada, two big countries that are also providing lots of funds uh, in this region. I, I'm sorry to say, like I feel like I should ask you. You know, I, <laughs> I don't really feel equipped to answer that. Um, the only the thing that I've I've come across in my research is um, work that talks about African language languages and that the barriers that they face are even greater. Um, but like in terms of cultivating a kind of book culture, if, if that's the aim. Um, but in terms of the other, I mean, I, I, I speculate that there are some similar dynamics at work. Um, but I wouldn't want to say that absolutely. Um, without doing more research in on those topics. And I hope you write another book <laughs> on that topic. <laughs> I don't think I have the language competence. You know, it's one of those things like 10 people should write it or 20 people or, you know, 100 people. Um, yeah. It's such a massive topic. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. Now, mm-hmm. I do want to come about uh, the new modes of reading that you have in the book called Demotic Reading Cultures. And I, I searched and searched about this on the internet. I was absolutely fascinated by the term you have used, demotic. Can you tell us why you choose that term and what you mean by that in this context? Sure. Um, well, I, I tried to kind of like... Um, and I don't know how successfully, but like cluster different terminology um, around these two poles. And I was I was trying to um, suggest that the like the most common paradigm, let's call it for study of um, print culture pits, it's based on Pierre Bourdieu and it, it does that thing with the high art elite sphere and the more popular mass sphere um, and says that they're in this constant conversation. Um, and I was trying to suggest that um, in study of this kind of print culture, um, let's say African urban print culture, or we could say um, book cultures in areas of so-called underdevelopment, there is a different kind of dynamic that's like um, the state, not 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 African state. <laughs> um, the let's say backed by global governance or by NGOs or by foundations, and um, officially sanctioned, licensed high art sort of developmental, I called it developmentalist. Um, And then on the other hand, you have this sort of more popular um, 
demotic and I called it some other things like entrepreneurial or hustle culture or more interested in just, um, you know, uh, survival in the moment rather than expansion and with an eye to this, this kind of um, development. And I, you, the, I, I think that there's what's interesting about the more popular demotic sphere um, is the way in which, like, first of all, that's probably where inculcation of English literacy is happening rather than in the other sphere. Um, and it's also, um, I think, where a lot of the more like interesting and dynamic activity in cultivation of, of um, reading materials is happening. And by that, I'm just mainly thinking about reading on smartphones, you know, which I, I didn't talk about um, too extensively um, in the book because, you know, I, I hadn't done like a ton of research. I've actually, you know, done more since I'm still working on this topic, especially looking at Okada books. But, um, and the, the other things that I find interesting about what's going on over there um, in the demotic sphere is the, um, in piracy, you know, I'm just really interested in, in piracy and attempts to sort of, um, and, attempts to justify cracking down on, on it and attempts to, to crack down on it. Um, and, um, yeah, so that's, I, I'm not sure I answered your question. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I had a particularly like long think about use of the term demotic, but I think I, I just meant it as a kind of a signal or signifier of sort of, um, non-elite activity or, um, more like, um, conversational and less so-called elevated. Um, a lot of the terminology that's used to describe this kind of reading material, I find really um, problematic. So that it was also a way of avoiding that. So some like um, when you look at NGOs, like even the one that I look at in the study, the Canadian Organization for Development Through Education, they will refer to readers um they will re refer to literature for learning readers um, as sort of like, you know, uh, as low level, <laughs> things like that. They'll use words like low or, you know, and I, I was trying to avoid uh, doing that, certainly, um, because that's just not how I think about it. Um, and I also think like what's interesting about that, that sphere of production is how much effort there is to kind of control what happens in it. Um, on the part of the sort of more official, like licensed producers of, of book cultures. Um, yeah. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you completely answered the question. Um, um, I also want to come back uh, to the topic of, of foreign publications that you have referred uh, to a twice or thrice now. Um, 
when one ordinarily thinks of um, foreign publications in the global south, one thing associates with more uh, monetary resources, uh, editorial resources, opportunities for the authors. But you paint a not so rosy picture uh, of uh, the foreign publications in Africa. Um, why is that? Uh, do you mean um, like overseas things that were produced overseas circulating in Africa? Um, you, you know uh, the 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 fact that uh, foreign public it, it's almost as if if an African author is to be taken seriously, it's is to have one book or or more than that published uh, in a foreign uh, in a foreign press or teaching in, in in a foreign university how this in global south i mean uh, i'm indian and this we see to some extent in india too that uh, if if you are uh, let's just say a literary writer you you almost would have to be published in uk or us or, or, or something like that uh, why do you think this this has happened um, in in the global south, I mean this this is intimately linked to the, the the topic of development that you you have talked about. Yeah, that's um, such a good question. Again, I feel like there are a lot of ways you can answer this. I mean, it's not like I I don't want to blame the writers. Do you know what I mean? I I don't mean to be. Um, judging their choices so much as understanding the conditions in which they work. I think that's my training as a cultural materialist is to sort of look at the conditions of production of culture. Um, And I think there's a practical reason why if you um, grow up in Nigeria and you aspire to be a successful writer, you would aspire to be successful um, with, say, a North American or European market. Um, And that's just the practical material reason that that's the only way you're going to be able to sustain a career as a writer. Um, It would be tremendously difficult to do that otherwise. It's different, perhaps, if you want to be someone who has another career, like I talk about um, the author of Finding Columbia, um, which is, you know, for early readers. And um, that's someone who says, like, I'm happy to be a banker and I'm going to write books on the side. I don't need to make publishing my career. Um, But this is also someone who's not like um, aspiring to uh, esteemed position within the literary field. Um, So part of it is that recognition of the practical necessity of that, which has to do, of course, with under capitalization of the local industries. Um, But these, you know, these dynamics also reflect and, and I think perpetuate um, broader phenomena and problems. Um, Part of this, I think, you know, could go back. And I, I, I was just thinking about this this morning about the impact that Gari Viswanathan's book, um, Maps of Conquest had on me (laughs) as someone studying English literature as an undergraduate, and then seeing like what 
the establishment of the authority of English um, literary expression, how that was functioning in the British colonies. And I do think that part of what's going on here is just the ongoing maintenance of a kind of global uh, imbalanced, uneven system of esteem and prestige, where prestige is to an extent, not exclusively, but still seen to kind of like emerge from and be bestowed upon from, um, you know, the former colonial powers, um, and now the centers of the so-called developed economies. Um, and so that dynamic um, is you know, it's ongoing and it's maintained. Um, and I think it's important to point that out. Um, so that's, that's, that's part of the story as well. And I think, you know, there, it's possible that there's that shifting somewhat. Um, but I think it's, it's still pretty clear um, that that, that maintains, that remains the case. And I think writers themselves often complain about this and also refract it and reflect upon it or mediate it, if you will, in their work, um, in how they reflect upon their experience of being dependent on this kind of system of acclaim in order to establish their reputations. Yes, yes, you're absolutely uh, right. Um, how do you think then uh, these uh, demotic um, modes of reading can, can change this this dynamic? Do, do you think there is there, there can be a change, or do you think um, it, it, that demotic modes of reading will have their own path and they run parallel to each other? Oh, that's a very good question. I'm not really good at speculating um, about future things, but um, I feel like it would be interesting actually to look or compare the example um, of popular reading materials in English in India, um, where, you know, there, there has been a kind of like, um, or there is, there is now a, a broad kind of popular marketplace for um, English language, like mass text, popular texts. Um, but my understanding is that the audience for that is still um, kind of delimited by disposable income. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not totally sure. So that's not really a satisfying answer. Um, I think probably um, my, if I had to predict what will happen, I think it will continue along the the same track that it is, and perhaps um, reflect a bit more, or or what's going on even in North America. That the two will kind of um, develop in ways that are somewhat parallel, you know. So I think that the it will be increasingly difficult for the more elite literary sphere to sustain itself based on market sales um, and it will be more dependent or continue to be dependent on private foundation funding. And I, I'm saying that just because I feel like that's what's going on all over the place, um, that there is a diminishing um, role for an interest in cultivation of like bourgeois literary dispositions. 
for all kinds of fascinating reasons um, that are fundamentally economic. And then probably um, the mass popular sphere will um, cultivate its own forms of uh, authority and its own forms of um, prizing and esteem, you know, Um, and will like something like a prize for the best flash fiction, you know, or uh, that will be funded by a smartphone app. You know, I, I think that's the kind of the thing that that's the kind of thing that's that's likely to conti- continue. So there will be more, um, if you will, <laughs> private sector like smartphone backed by Google um, skimming off the top of um, informal sector literary activity like self-publishing and uploading your words of wisdom to <laughs> to the Okada Books app um, and. And yeah, so that's kind of what I what I would what I would anticipate um, happening. We can we can talk again in five years and <laughs> see I, how I many. I think we should. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, in the end, I would also like to take an opportunity to ask you about your present projects. Uh, what should we look forward to reading from you? Oh gosh. Um... I should have prepared for this. Didn't anticipate this question. Um, so I'm writing about, or I have been writing about um, self-publishing um, platforms and apps. So I have been writing about Wattpad and Okada Books and kind of comparing them a bit. Um, and I'm thinking about the models of creativity that they cultivate. So the forms of, of writing and of thinking of yourself as an author that they kind of tap into and cultivate. Um, and I'm also writing about social media and the kind of social mediaization of the publishing industry and the way that writers who aspire to some kind of success using these apps um, have to do all kinds of behind the scenes work. It's very time consuming um, and very poorly paid, if paid at all, um, to cultivate their fan base. Um, And then just looking at the kind of like economic models of how these apps kind of, um, you know, they elicit a kind of loyalty and a kind of um, constancy of upload and engagement and benefit from that and um, make money. Uh, And not much of that is, authors don't see much of that money, (laughs) let's put it that way. Um, So just the sort of economic model of these these smartphone um, apps and platforms and the kinds of of writing that's, that's being done on those. So that's that's basically what I've been up to. That sounds very interesting. I hope I get to talk to you again about the, your new book. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, all the best for your project. Thank you.